Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by World Anvil. As we head out to the moon and beyond to settle our solar system, we will need to decide why we are doing it and what strategies we will pursue as we claim these new worlds. A few weeks back we did an episode on Convergent Evolution where we discussed evolutionary survival strategies, overarching concepts like mass egg laying or seed production versus single births and parents, and I thought today we'd apply this to one of our favorite topics on the show, colonizing our solar system. Indeed the parallels are pretty strong, one approach in nature to spreading organism is to create seed pods the wind will carry far away to many places and one of our approaches to interstellar space colonization are seed ships and von Neumann probes, tiny spacecraft that grow more of themselves, or even build a civilization when they arrive, then send more seeds off. Today's topic is colonizing our solar system though, not interstellar space, and in many ways we are more curious about the motivations driving the actors because of so many possible strategies. Whether you're rushing to stake claims on gold-rich asteroids or aiming to mass-upload humanity to giant solar-powered computers to run their brains in virtual utopias really alters your strategy for colonization. We often discuss the particular processes for terraforming a world or various megastructures we might build in space to serve as habitats, industries, or weapon systems, but we don't really talk about the basic drive, motivation, and strategy of doing these things. As an example, a choice to focus on asteroid mining and colonization is quite different than a focus on terraforming planets, as too would be a choice to harvest minor plants for resources to build orbital infrastructure around Earth, or even to build multiple onion-like layers of habitation on Earth, what we call a Matryoshka shell world. This is critical to how the future unfolds because in many ways, right now, our motive for getting into space is to be able to say we did so much like the drive of many explorers in history. Officially, it was often for finding new wealth and resources and opportunities, but often they did it to be able to say they did, and their funding came from folks who were motivated by that, holding social events to celebrate the accomplishment. A lot of explorers died, and while the successful often did get rich, it is at best a high-risk, high-reward strategy and one often pursued by those who are already quite wealthy and in many cases could have pursued much lower risk-reward strategies. However, they are at least partially being compelled, as is their society in terms of offering up funding and acclaim, by the evolutionary strategy of trying to widen your species' survival niche by hurling your seeds or offspring off to distant places to take root there, and by the other survival strategy of wandering to new places to seek fresh and unclaimed territory, or find a mate who is not a close relative. That's not exactly the motivation of the critters or folks doing it, they just have a compulsion or water y'all. But that's three separate evolutionary survival strategies that encourage exploring and settling. Get your offspring to new places, get yourself fresh territory, get yourself a mate and offspring who are not closely related to avoid inbreeding problems. And need a fourth of getting new useful DNA traits for your offspring from distant mutant cousins. Not all traits encourage that disperse, explore, and settle approach either. 
close social bonds of parent and child, siblings, mate detachment, or tribal friendships discourage packing up and leaving or encouraging others to, and that is another direction we'll contemplate in terms of solo colonization today. Indeed, that might make dividing a pack or tribe so hard that it explains why things like Dunbar's number, the maximum number of close relationships a human can have with other people, at about 150, has not evolved to something higher. It would make separating the tribe into two new ones too painful. Critical notion though is that at the moment it's mostly our innate desire to follow these paths that drive space colonization, and we rationalize that by looking at potential future technologies that would let us more easily reach, create, and nurture new homes as why it's logical not just an urge. I want to emphasize that before we dig into some of these specific strategies. After years of discussing space colonization, I've noted folks tend to fall into two camps on it. The ones who fundamentally view it as a worthy goal on its own, and offer the practical scenarios as icy on the cake, space travel is good for its own sake, and with effort will eventually become practical. Camp 2 are those who don't view it as currently practical, and thus view the whole thing as a waste of time, if it ever becomes practical, they figure, we can pursue it then. I'm in that first camp and most folks watching this probably are too, and I think it can sometimes blind us to ramifications of certain approaches because for space enthusiasts, whether we leave motivated to explore, to terraform worlds, or to mine gold, the main motivation is to get out there for its own sake. Alternatively, a bunch of colonies made with the specific intent of making money back home is a very different motivation, producing a very different culture than a bunch of colonies made by breakaway bits of humanity who sell all they own to go found their personal utopia on some wretched airless rock because it's better, in their eyes, than hanging out with the rest of us who either oppress them or stubbornly refuse to admit they are right about everything. Now it is my general belief that every motivation is going to find its way into space in the same way as it has in just about every political, economic, cultural, and religious scenario. There are trillions of planets in this galaxy, and the resources to construct millions of times that in living space with artificial habitats. That amounts to a lot of room to grow and try out new ideas. There are millions of asteroids in our solar system alone that would each easily contain entire civilizations, and those both near many neighbors and very isolated all at the same time. However, they are likely to follow certain strategies either as a matter of practicality or convention. If I'm a political group or new religious sect, I can often follow a couple tried and true strategies for growth. Energetic evangelizing and converting is one option, with various sub-strategies available from physical coercion to peaceful discussion. You've also got expansion by reproduction, be fruitful and multiply, and non-expansion, a hidden sect or an elite group expanding influence and resources but not numbers, each wanting their own share of the power Each of those approaches is looking at space differently, but if you're feeling stuck in a sea of those opposed to your belief, a new virgin land is a very attractive approach and one pursued a lot in the Age of Sail. This is not what we'd expect the first colonies in space to look like. A small group isolated from the majority is not those most easily able to put together an expensive expedition, and the first expeditions are most expensive since they need the most new innovation, the most prototypes, the most redundancy, and the most support and resources, enthusiasm, and expertise. At first, that might seem to make this strategy less likely, 
that all the Force Moon bases, Force Mars bases, Force Base on any new ward or star would belong to a major player, the folks able to find several billion dollars in capital to risk. However, putting a base on the moon of a few dozen folks no more claims that whole place as yours than driving your car to the middle of a desert and planting a flag on it does. In colonization eras, there were local populations explorers could strike up relationships with, be it a trade treaty or permission to form a settlement nearby or conquest, which can advantage the Force folks to arrive. But a place like the moon is huge, it's really hard to claim putting a few domes the size of a house on it even represents a legitimate claim to all the area you can see around you, and the moon is smaller than Earth with a much sharper and closer horizon. So that's not a lot. 2.4 2.4 kilometers on flat terrain versus about double that on Earth. In such case, the moon would actually represent about 2 million circular plots of land of 1900 hectares or 4600 acres, and that's a plot of land quite capable of supporting many thousands of people, at least if domed and farmed or solar paneled and grown in underground caves, and something fairly similar applies to Mars. This sort of approach would represent a diversification strategy too allowing or even encouraging millions of different new seeds of civilizations or subcultures to emerge across the moons and asteroids of the solar system, either as independent and sovereign states or subdivisions of existing ones, each with its own plots as far as the eye can see on their world, which often won't be far given how sharply curving smaller moons and asteroids are. Of course the moon is not flat, it's covered in craters, many with rim walls as high as mountains, and indeed all the mountains we refer to on the moon are bits of larger crater walls. Those craters themselves range from too small to stand in to almost 5 million square kilometers in the case of the Aitken Basin on the South Pole. That's nearly 1% of the entire surface of Earth, and fully an eighth of the moon, but it's also exceptional and full of many other small craters itself. Someone might be able to make a claim on the whole thing, one of the big players, though probably at the cost of agreeing to no other territorial initial hoardings there. You can see our episode Battle for the Moon for more discussion of how this sort of thing could play out, but the key point is that much of the best and most natural settlement sites on the moon are large craters several kilometers across, or large underground lava tubes hundreds of meters wide and many kilometers long. This lends itself to letting the first few colonies be big efforts that get the claim on the nicest spots and have a head start but not an overwhelming one and one that offers millions of further settlement sites to those looking to do it on a budget, after the folks who did it first worked out the hard parts. Their reward for the effort is that first dibs and head start, but not for totality. Nobody is going to be able to claim every plausible large crater site on the moon without qualifying as a hyperpower, not just a superpower. And a case like that, Unless they both seek and succeed in pulling off extreme homogeneity within their empire, they just have tons of divorce factions under their umbrella but requesting their own colonization site, like if the UN transferred to more of a federal body or gained oversight on what got settled and by whom. Which is decently likely, current space technology does not lend itself to allowing colonization during open and high-intensity military conflicts. The guns are too big and the targets too fragile so that would be a strategy that is not available for space colonization under the current known factors. As an ex-soldier who's been working for or with the military in some capacity or another since I was a teenager, I tend to roll my eyes at the notion of a peaceful, let alone pacifist future as unrealistic, 
as a person literally writing the script an hour before giving a guest lecture to a military-funded R&D facility, I tend to try to keep my brain active on the sorts of defense and security issues near-term space colonization could cause, and I just haven't heard a plausible scenario for successfully deploying a militant colonization and settlement strategy in space without major paradigm-shifting technologies of the kinds we discussed in our Black Swans episode or Clock Tech series. The militant option is essentially a denial-of-resources approach, it does not lend itself to delicate colonies, it does lend itself to wrecking them though. So you can have a big old World War III followed by colonization by the victors, or you can have a solar war break out after colonization. But colonization itself, while there are major players involved who might oppose someone colonizing something, can only occur with the consent of all those players. It might be a very strong-armed consent, but we're talking the realm of diplomacy here, not active war. So it's a, hey, this place is ours, but you could have that place, even if it's a, we'll claim this fertile river valley, and you could have that icy mountain and you that nice desert. And space is pretty universally hostile and dead. So the major players, each claiming one of the planets while everybody else got various minor planets, moons, and asteroids, is not necessarily that lopsided and also unlikely in my view. Not a case the US gets Mars, Russia gets Venus, China Mercury, and the EU the Jovian moons or such, but more likely each place getting divided up, and further divided by those folks to whichever group can convince them to give or lease them some as a subordinate entity or totally sovereign state. I would also guess the latter would be rare. There are just too many advantages for a small colony to remain as a sub-state of an existing nation back here on Earth, for anyone to be contemplating that unless they happen to be very xenophobic or isolationist. That is one colonization strategy a nation might pursue too, even a smaller one, you basically agree to act as their government in the ways they want for a fee. So some smaller but stable nation back here, like Switzerland or Iceland or Luxembourg or the UAE or Singapore, agrees to provide high courts for felonies and appeals, arbitration with other nations or companies, defense, a stable currency or platform for selling bonds or treasury notes, an official place to import goods to Earth from without tariffs, or so on, to any colony asking for a charter from them in exchange for following certain rules and paying certain fees or considerations, like serving as a free dock for their naval vessels, etc. I mention this one because it's also a plausible scenario and strategy for a smaller nation without much of a space program to become a big player by essentially being a tax haven or similar to smaller groups, companies, or political, religious, or ideological groups wanting to found colonies mostly under their own banner. This strategy could be seen as be valuable to your colonies, a bit like the traditional parent or tribal shaman role, and is a reminder that the strategy isn't mostly going to be about how to best colonize, for most folks involved in the game the strategy is the same as down here on Earth, but with these emerging colonies as increasingly significant players. That's a pretty important factor, because it is likely to be several centuries before there's more people living off Earth than on Earth and probably just as long for any place other than Earth even gets into the range of being as populated as Earth to be able to get a seat at the table as a peer. As a result, with Earth at the center for millennia to come, the biggest motivation driving space colonies will be how they benefit folks back on Earth. Mind you, that can include them feeling good about contributing to humanity's expansion to the stars or groups on Earth sending out seeds to grow their splinter of civilization on new worlds, 
but Earth will be the big player. Sci-fi delights in showing us Mars or some other world as a rival to Earth, even just a few centuries from now, but that plain ain't happening. The usual justification is that all the great pioneers and minds travel to the New World, and that some disaster happens back on Earth. The popular one these days is ecological ruin and the problem is the technologies that let you terraform plants or build space habitats with ecosystems inside is the same kind that let you fix ecological problems on Earth or survive them even when they're so bad they burn off the ocean and atmosphere, which will require weapons and energies we don't even vaguely have right now. So Earth is going to be dictating things for a while, and the reason it might not be dictation is that there's not likely to be a particularly unified Earth with unified policies. Even if some country did manage to achieve not only global supremacy but single-party rule, it wouldn't have much holding that together outside of itself, so presumably would factionalize again unless the power in question was something like a super-intelligent AI going totalitarian or genocidal. Which is another valid strategy, two of them actually, eliminating the competition or fleeing it, and there are very few occasions when this strategy functions well. It relies on all other players being aligned to Group A or Group B, or being very apathetic to what A or B do to each other, or simply not existing. Analysis and guesswork on the future tends to often run the problem of folks forgetting to take into account the other players acting on the board game. Except in rare hypothetical scenarios, an agency acting against another can't ignore the reactions of other agencies around them, only certain things can get around this like a malevolent and rapid technological singularity, think Skynet from Terminator, only vastly smarter and more competent, or an ancient alien empire who controlled the whole galaxy and wiped out or conquered all their life in it and has just now met us, their newest victim. The thing is, Earth to its early colonies absolutely qualifies as such a power, however, there is no capability to act in a unified and vicious fashion against them. You can almost be guaranteed some power block is going to come to their aid, even if it's just to loudly criticize the bully because they either morally feel they should, or just opportunists enjoying the quick backstab and chance to twist the knife. It's really only in those occasions where the internal opposition to an activity is tiny that someone can act in that sort of fashion. Note that we're not assuming Earth-based powers are acting with kindness or benevolence to colonies, just that they are acting inside the confines of diplomatic interactions. It's a common notion that drives for colonizing space would be principally about money, and I think for many that is true, but in such cases that's probably the motivation for folks funding the effort back home, not the folks doing it. Nor is money usually the sole motivation. Even on a corporate board focused on getting the bottom line up, someone in that room is motivated by a feeling of duty to the shareholders or employees, someone is thinking about how some new initiative is going to result in a prestigious award, or their new philanthropic effort will get them a statue, or how they don't like being seen as the greedy bad guy and so on. Out at the colony, it might be that it was proposed to the backers as a gold mine, literally, and they were sourcing the colonists and workers from their ideological group who were essentially wanting to set up a big colony of their own inside the chosen asteroid that would be their utopia far from others, and the mineral extraction is just their means of getting funding for startup and maintenance. But same as with the corporate board we mentioned before, odds are good they have plenty of members with secondary motives too, who believe in their cause and colony but want to be rich too. So our principal driving motives are resources and growth but not only can those be pursued by multiple strategies, but they also depend on what other motivations are mixed in there. 
For instance, if my strategy is to maximize human population, but I have that it requires the idyllic norm is life in a house with a family on a small farm or forest, with reasonable comfort mostly achieved by walking the land, then the colonization strategy likely to be pursued is to disassemble the whole solar system to make O'Neill cylinders or bigger versions of them. Eudaimomena as a prime goal for civilization is a fairly likely goal. Very loosely, this is a civilization seeking happiness, but not quite in any respect, it's not supposed to be rampant simple hedonism of maximizing pleasure, and how one defines this sort of ethical and idyllic societal happiness really controls your colonization strategies too. For instance, a civilization wishing to maximize human pleasure might go for putting everyone's brains into life support tanks and constantly stimulating their pleasure centers which we would expect to result in a Dyson Swarm of solar panels with brain tanks strapped on them, raising the human population to somewhere around 10 to 25th people, or about 10 trillion trillion. As opposed to O'Neill Cylinder, with the rural land focused one I just mentioned, which tops out at more like 10 to 20th people, or 100 billion billion, only about one person for every 100,000 in the brain and jaw version, and you could go to the extreme the other way one small community or even one lone person per space habitat, or the more intensive way, folks living in virtual wards with even more space themselves, either as brains in jars or as uploaded minds, or Matrix-style, body floating in the amniotic fluid tank. Note that in each of these though the strategy still comes down to disassemble every rock in the solar system and make more power collectors and habitats. You must construct additional pylons, do so as quickly as you can and wish to, and this is one of the reasons we often tend to discuss Dyson Swarms as near-inevitable. Even in scenarios where everyone keeps living on Earth as we slowly import materials directly and add layer after layer of new spherical shells above to live on, that still implies a lot of support structures in globing the Sun to get power, get rid of heat, and do any processes we don't feel obliged to do on Earth that would be cheaper elsewhere, like maybe growing food. This flies in the face of terraforming planets, and folks might be wondering when I was going to say what our strategy and order for terraforming should be. That's part of the problem, I half expect a lot of the political conflict at the solar level for the next couple millennia to be folks who invested heavily into terraforming planets, financially, emotionally, or ideologically, fighting a real guard against a rising populace that sees them as wasteful of material. It might be a strong real guard too. You might have civilizations on a place like Mars whose whole culture, even to a religious level, is focused on the greening of the red planet. Terraforming or paraterraforming of the major planets and bigger moons is the best known strategy for colonizing the solar system and partially because it's one of the easiest to start under known science. It's a slow growth approach from a small seed, and one with a pioneer appeal, thus is likely to be one initiated in a few places at least. So too are orbital colonies around Earth itself, taking advantage of the proximity by being close in orbit to Earth. The other two big ones will be colonies embedded in the asteroid belt and those focused on creating their own mini-solar systems around the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. These strategies are fairly complementary and could run in tandem, and also involve direct control of a lot of those material assets so I could imagine them being rather resistant to any later efforts at Dysoning or starlifting using them. Of course they have their own reason to be in conflict with each other and with Earth, but I could imagine that the bigger struggle in the millennia to come would be between them and that effort to go for a K2 civilization in a Dyson Swarm. 
that effort might go on long enough to be strongly influenced by Kuiper Belt and Oort Cloud Outposts and even interstellar colonies. Those might be seen as a source of raw materials to circumvent deconstruction of the planets in our solar system or as rivals binding us together against an external threat, but that's a discussion for another time, those interstellar colonization strategies. We were talking about motivations for colonization of new worlds today, and one thing I pointed out is that us space enthusiasts sometimes have a disconnect in trying to forecast why most folks, groups, businesses, or governments would want to invest in forging new worlds. For many of us space enthusiasts the reason to colonize space is to colonize space. All the other motivations are a bit secondary because that drive to explore and create and world build is such a strong one. Now if you're already into role playing games or writing stories you know what a fun thing world building is, to dial your daydreaming up to 11, and if you have not, especially if the content on the show tends to grab your interest, then it is a hobby I suspect you would find worth trying out. One problem with really elaborate world building though, especially if you want to share it with others, is that you need to move it from your head to paper or computer, and a lot of the developmental time and mental energy gets burned up just trying to organize your notes and build the framework and often trying to learn multiple pieces of software as you try to make maps or craft tables or indices. Over the years I've tried a lot of those platforms and always been disappointed in either their learning curve or limitations, and so I was very surprised when I first used Ward Anvil because they nailed virtually everything I was looking for in a Ward building tool set and have a bunch of other awesome creative or time saving features I never even realized I wanted till I saw them. Ward Anvil, the award-winning board building toolset, has tons of tools, it is intuitive to learn, and has a giant stockpile of free tutorial videos that not only show how to use those tools, but suggest ways to improve your world building in general, to make it easy, appealing, and informative to your players or audience. Whether you're managing a campaign or writing a novel, whether you're making city or dungeon maps or connecting them to each other in a wider world map, or crafting family genealogies, Ward Anvil lets you forge your setting better and easier than anything I've ever worked with before, and it has a free version so you can share it with others, and selectively so they're not seeing secret content. And you can also incorporate ways to monetize your content such as Patreon or Kofi or your own storefront. Ward Anvil offers Wikipedia-like articles for your ward setting, interactive maps, timelines, an RPG campaign manager, and a full novel writing software, all the tools you need to run your RPG campaign or write your novel and never lose your notes again. If you'd like to give Ward Anvil a try and let it help you forge new worlds, just click the link in this episode's description. So on the topic of creating awesome science fiction and fantasy settings, there's no official SFIA Book of the Month this month, but let me give a shout out to Alastair Reynolds' new Revelation Space novel, Inhibitor Space, which apparently came out last month but I literally just found out about so I haven't got to read it yet. I don't doubt it will be awesome though, he is my favorite sci-fi author and has a knack for writing mind-blowing novels and settings while keeping inside known physics. Let me also give a shout out to Erasmo Acosta's novel K3+, which I recently started and am pleasantly surprised to see incorporates tons of megastructures and other things we discuss on the show for humanity's future, but which a lot of sci-fi authors skip over. Many of you probably recognize Erasmo from our show's Facebook forum where he's been an active participant to kicking futurism ideas around in for years. If you have not checked out our social media forums, they are a great place to discuss all sorts of ideas, even beyond what we look at in our episodes 
and I'm glad to see those episodes inspiring some writing too. Speaking of those episodes, we have our mid-month Sci-Fi Sunday episode coming out this weekend to take a look at one potential method of faster than light travel, by affording space to travel instantly to new stars. Then we will turn to our Alien Civilization series to contemplate aliens with tempos and aggressive tendencies in Belligerent Aliens, and in two weeks we'll talk about another colonization strategy for space, saving Earth, before closing out the month with our livestream Q&A, though unlike last month's Halloween livestream Q&A, Sarah and I will not be wearing costumes. Now if you want to make sure you get notified when those episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed the episode don't forget to hit the like button and share it with others. If you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon, or our website IsaacArthur.net, and Patreon and our website are linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.